Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Good, we're all here. We're all here. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to gather around God's word together because God always has something good for us. Let's just pray and invite God's spirit to come and be our teacher this morning. God, we could not even take a breath today without you. And we certainly can't hear your voice without the power of your spirit working in our lives. So please open our ears, even more importantly, open our hearts and our souls to what you are saying today. Let this not ever be about me or about anyone up on this platform, but let it always be about you. Amen. We're going to look today at a story that we've been diving into the last few weeks. Today we're in the midst of a huge national party. It's like a ticker tape parade. You've seen those before in New York City, right? Where they throw masses of, massive amounts of ticker tape down from the buildings. Yeah, it's always a big deal when someone gets a ticker tape parade. Today in 1 Samuel 18, David is getting the ancient Near Eastern version of a ticker tape parade because big things have been happening. The hugest challenge, literally, that the nation of Israel has faced has just been overcome. Goliath, the giant, has been defeated by this little shepherd boy named David. David has killed Goliath. It's led to an end of, uh, of the battle between the two sides, the Philistines versus the Israelites, at least for a while. And so everyone's rejoicing. So that's where we're diving in to 1 Samuel 18. If you would take a Bible, either your Bible if you brought it, or open a pew Bible, 1 Samuel 18. We're going to read verses 6 through 9. The party has started here. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. We're going to stop there and come back to the scripture a little later, so leave that open in your lap or next to you. So David and his army come back to Jerusalem. Everybody's celebrating. Women are singing and dancing, and David is getting a lot of attention. And now King Saul really starts to pay attention when he hears what they're singing. They're singing that Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed ten thousands, and Saul suddenly sees the popularity shifting away from him and to David. And Saul's the king, so he doesn't want to see that happen. He realizes that his status as king is becoming threatened. 
And I love what verse 9 says. From that day on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The NRSV says, so Saul eyed David from that day on. You know what that look is, right? Saul eyed David from that day on. He kept his eye on him. He's becoming paranoid about David. And we have accounts in the chapters to come of six times where Saul tries to kill David. This doesn't seem fair, does it? This does not seem fair. After all, David left his sheep and his flock and his nice life at home to put himself in harm's way, go out on the battlefield and fight Goliath and lead the army of Israel into defeating the Philistines on behalf of Saul. And here Saul is trying to kill David with jealousy. It's not fair. It's not fair at all. You know, life isn't always fair. We all know that, don't we? Sometimes it's downright unfair. Sometimes you do everything right, and by no fault of your own, circumstances turn against you. Or sometimes people turn against you. I read a story once about these two teenage girls who decided that they wanted to spread some love and cheer around their neighborhood. They knew they had many neighbors who were kind of isolated, and so one day after school they decided to go home and bake cookies and wrap them up and put them on people's porches with a little note saying, this is, you know, from a friendly neighbor. And one porch that they went up on belonged to a woman who was living a pretty isolated life. When she heard footsteps on her porch, she became alarmed. And these girls knocked on the door and then left. And this so upset this woman that she had sort of a panic attack. And when she found out that these girls had come and left cookies on her porch and disturbed her peace, she sued them for emotional damages. (laughs) They were just trying to brighten her day, right? No good deed goes unpunished. Sometimes life isn't fair. People and circumstances can take away what is rightly yours, steal your peace, steal your safety. You might be someone like David, pursued by someone or something from your past, and it's just not fair. The good news is you are not the first person to face a circumstance like this. And the better news is that God has a lot of experience in helping people, giving his people strength when life is not fair and there are giants nearby. We're doing this series called Giants in the Land, Facing Life's Challenges with Faith. And today we're looking at a person after God's own heart, David, and the faith that he has and how he allowed God into his circumstances that were not fair to face what became a giant in his life. First he faced the giant of, of Goliath, and then Saul, his own king, became that giant that David had to face, Saul's unjust accusations against David. So let's see what happens a little bit further into the story. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 
just a few pages over from where we were in 18, 1 Samuel 24. We're going to read this whole chapter. After, return, after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all over Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. <clears throat> At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power. Do with him as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my lord the king, he said to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord the king and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say, I am trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes that it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. And he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away with when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for your kindness, the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family or destroy my line of descendants. 
So David promised this to Saul with an oath. And then Saul went home. But David and his men went back to their stronghold. David's men see this opportunity opening up. And they say to David, look, here's Saul. He's in this cave all by himself. He doesn't know we're here. This is your chance. God has arranged this whole thing so you can get back at him. And he's put, David, he's put Saul into your hands. It's so easy to sink to the lowest level. It's so easy to fight fire with fire. It's so easy to go for the nuclear option, as they say. Jesus' disciples had the same kind of conversation with Jesus in Luke. Luke 9 says he sent his messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Couldn't you kind of almost hear them going, is this our big chance to call down fire from heaven? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. So easy to fight fire with fire. There's something broken in each of us that just loves that idea sometimes of fighting fire with fire. Or maybe we don't quite go for the nuclear option, but maybe we're tempted to quietly undermine, to badmouth behind their back, or to act cooperatively, cooperatively to their face, but take every opportunity to make them look bad. And you know, often we have friends around us who egg us on, who egg us on to urge us to give back what we've been getting. Just like David had here. He had his men surrounding him saying, David, go for it. Now's your chance. Max Lucado, looking at this story, suggests that honestly, David had several choices in front of him. He said David could go public and criticize his boss, Saul, and his organization while still accepting the benefits of working for him. Or David could do as little as necessary to collect his paycheck. He could take longer than allowed lunch breaks and manipulate the rules and spend company time on personal projects. Or David could faithfully fulfill his responsibilities as if he was working for God, not a vindictive and unreasonable person. So here's what David did. He cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But even then, he felt convicted about it. Saul had been chosen by God to be the king, until it was David's time to take the throne, David felt that the honorable thing to do before God was to treat Saul as the king with the respect due to a king. Even though King Saul was treating him unfairly, he didn't stoop to his level. He realized that the truth of that, saying that our parents taught us when we were kids, two wrongs don't make a right. Simple, but deep at the same time. When someone treats us unfairly, it's very easy to forget this holy truth 
that that person is made in the image of God. That person is someone for whom Christ died. That person is especially beloved by God, as each one of us is. It's so easy to miss that truth. Somehow, by the grace of God, David was able to hold on to that and say, who is this person? Who is Saul in the eyes of God? That's how I need to respond to Saul. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that righteous anger to God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame upon their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. See, God put Saul in a position of authority, and it was God's job to take care of Saul, not David's job. David wanted the promise that he would be king to be fulfilled, but he refused to try and fulfill that promise of God through his own disobedience. Sometimes our temptation in the midst of a situation where things are not fair and things are not going right and we know what the good is that we're trying to get to, sometimes the temptation is to take a shortcut through disobedience, a shortcut through doing things the wrong way to get to something that's right. This is exactly the temptation that Jesus faced in the desert when the devil came to him after he'd been fasting for 40 days, the devil leads Jesus up onto a high place where he can see all of Israel. It says he can see all the kingdoms of the world from this high place. And Satan says to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor. It's been given to me, Satan says, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you will worship me, Jesus, it will all be yours. Now, isn't that Jesus' goal to have all the authority and all the splendor of all the kingdoms of the world? Yes, that's what we pray for when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was Jesus' goal. He could have taken a quick shortcut there, but you can't take a good shortcut through something bad and hope to get to something good. God will never ask us to accomplish something good by doing something evil. When we're trying to discern God's will, one of the questions we always have to ask ourselves is, is this contrary to God's word? And if it is, no matter how much good it looks like it might accomplish, then no, that's not the path forward. That is not the path forward. God will never ask us to accomplish something good by doing something evil. We don't have to live that way because we have the power of God as part of our lives. So Saul leaves that cave. 
Not knowing that he's been in David's hands. Not knowing this whole conversation that's been going on in David's heart and with his men there. And then when he leaves the cave and gets a safe distance away, David comes out of the cave and says, Yoo-hoo! <laughs> Hello, Saul! Look who's here! And he takes the opportunity to try and clear his name with Saul. Verse 8 of chapter 24 He calls out to Saul and says, my lord and king. And then he bows down and uh, puts his face to the ground in front of the king. He treats Saul with honor and respect. We just heard that verse in Romans 12. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. That's the Christian way to live. David takes this opportunity to argue his case. He challenges the lie that Saul is acting on. David says to him, Why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to do you harm? He says, Why are you listening to these rumors and to these things that are causing you to wonder about my character and about my intentions? Why are you listening to those other people when you know the truth? takes the opportunity to argue his case. So much conflict is a result of listening to what someone says about someone else and believing that instead of us taking a hard look at reality or going to find out the truth from the person involved directly. David doesn't wait for Saul to make the first move at reconciliation, but he makes the first move and he clarifies his own motives and his own actions He challenges Saul. Hey, what you're doing is not right. I'm the innocent one here. Why are you listening to those who say I'm trying to kill you? He's standing up and he's speaking the truth. And that can be life-giving, not just for the one speaking, but the one hearing the truth as well. Naming the truth can be painful, but it can be a healing pain, a very different kind of pain than the pain of that taking revenge causes. And that's what we're really talking about here, is not taking revenge. Revenge is saying, you hurt me badly, and that wasn't fair, so now I'm going to make you feel the same kind of pain you made me feel. I'm going to hurt you back. I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. David was faithful in the darkness of that cave, to not take revenge. He shows Saul the piece of cloth from his robe so Saul knows that he was in David's hands and David chose not to take advantage of him. So David could have come to the mouth of that cave and mocked Saul as a loser and said, look at what you just put yourself through. But instead, he gives Saul another opportunity to change. He gives him mercy. The opposite of revenge is really mercy. Romans 12 again says, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Bernice Shug lived in California and worked as a housekeeper. One Sunday in church, she noticed in the bulletin a notice that said that next Sunday they were having a guest speaker who had been a kamikaze pilot 
in World War II. This particular pilot had a tremendous story about finding Jesus. And Bernice thought to herself, that may be true, but my boy was killed in World War II by a kamikaze pilot, and I don't think I could handle hearing this man speak at my church. Well, the next week, the Japanese pilot shared his story, his love and his gratitude for Jesus shone from his eyes. People could experience the love and the release that he had found, and they were moved by his testimony. When the service was over, the pastor walked with this man down the aisle to the rear of the church, and suddenly, as they approached the last pew, an older woman stepped out directly in their path, blocked their way. She stood firmly in front of that pilot and blocked his exit. She looked him squarely in the eye and said, my son was killed by a kamikaze. It was Bernice. She continued, I've seen how God has forgiven your sins, and tonight, for the first time in 40 years, I've allowed him to forgive mine. Will you forgive me for my hatred of your people? And with tears in his eyes, this young pilot said, Will you forgive me for what my people did to you? And she threw her arms around this young Japanese man, and they stood there holding each other, both of them crying and crying and weeping tears of peace and release and joy. Because blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, how could we ever be that merciful? Friends, this is where the really good news comes in. This is not a try-harder sermon. This is not a do-a-better-job sermon. This is a God's power is available sermon. This is not about how hard we can try to be merciful people and setting a standard up here that we can't do. This is saying, Jesus has done this for us. He has provided this life of mercy for us, and it's a life that we can take hold of and we can live if only we want it. That's the good news. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Amen to that? In this world, things will not be fair, but Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome the world. That is good news. That is good news. Saul, hearing David here, and seeing his actions and his attitude, changed his mind for the time being about killing David, and he goes off and leaves him alone. And what happens at the end? Does David come down from the mouth of the cave and give Saul a big hug, and they go off to Jerusalem together side by side? No. Verse 22 says, Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Mercy is one thing, and trust is another. They're two different things. Mercy is one thing, and trust is another. Trust is earned, and Saul has not earned that trust yet. So although David does not take revenge on Saul, he shows him mercy and treats him honorably. He doesn't put himself 
in a risky position with him. You can show mercy and forgiveness to someone and still not trust them because trust is like a drawbridge that has to have both sides come down in order to be driven across. Trust is earned. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We can show people mercy and grace without putting ourselves in the risky position of trusting them if trust needs to be earned. Well, the point of all this is that God is bigger than the circumstances of our lives. God is bigger than the injustices that life deals us. When we leave it to God to get even, rather than take revenge ourselves, God can take care of it in the right way. That's why mercy triumphs over justice. In Jesus Christ, God gives us more than the Saul's of our lives could ever take away. Mercy triumphs over justice. And you know, it's because of Jesus who faced the most unjust, unfair circumstance of all that we can be people who live in mercy and grace. Jesus, who never sinned, who lived the perfect life, who loved everyone in his life with perfect love, who had wisdom to negotiate every circumstance, that person, Jesus, was accused of betraying his country, of betraying his God, and was betrayed by the people closest to him, abandoned by his friends, and killed. No one understands that life can be unfair better than Jesus. But he has, he has gained the victory over not just death, but over all evil. And he invites us into that life of mercy and grace, forgiveness and victory with him. We have a lot to be thankful for. Would you join with me as we thank God for what he's done for us? Jesus, we can never begin to understand the goodness of your heart and our need. We can never understand how you would put yourself in the position of being betrayed and killed for our sakes. We didn't deserve that kind of love, but you gave it to us. What can we do but give our lives back to you as an offering of thanksgiving? God, if you love us that much, then we want to belong to you. We want to give you everything we've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you've given us this meal so that we can not just remember what you gave for us, but we can eat it and drink it, taste it, take it into ourselves, make it part of us. God, your grace is here, and we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on this bread, on this juice, so that it's not just normal, everyday food for us, but that it's something holy, 
that it feeds our souls, that we could meet you in person here around this table. And God, we need your power in our lives to be people of mercy. You know what each one here is facing, and you know those who are even now sitting here wrestling, wrestling with a certain person in their mind, wrestling with those deep soul choices of mercy or revenge. God, would you reach out and touch each one who is wrestling just now? Would you bring your mercy and your grace and your love in a new way to each one here who especially needs it? And would you fill them with your power so that they can reach out a hand of love and reconciliation to those who need it. Because God, we don't want this to be just theory. We want this to make an impact on our lives right here and right now. We need your forgiveness. We need your grace. And we are so thankful. God, make us like you today. That's our prayer. Make us like you. And we will trust you to do that in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.